Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, has the COVID-19 pandemic revealed the vulnerabilities in Canada's economy? Also, schools are closed for the remainder of the school year, but where does this leave summer camps? And Ontario has announced they are hosting a commission into long-term care. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, as uh, this week started, stage one opening up for the province of Ontario. We've seen businesses that have separate entrances allow for uh, customers to come in and uh, and and uh, as well curbside uh, sales uh, as well. But on the uh, on the tail of all of this, we're finding out that one of uh, Canada's uh, long-known retailers is going into creditor protection. Reitman's, uh, the latest business to go into creditor protection. To talk more about all of this, Bruce Winder is with us, retail expert, and is on the line now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. So your thoughts of us being in stage one and starting to open up the retail experience again? Well, it's definitely helpful. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's helpful, if anything, from a moral standpoint for the poor retailers who have been shut down as a result of this. The problem is that, sadly, they're probably not going to see a lot of business still um, because there's a certain percentage of the population who still don't feel comfortable going to stores. Um, And there's a certain percent of the population who are watching their nickels and dimes right now because they have a lot of uncertainty with their income. So it's definitely going to help retailers uh, if you have, you know, an entrance that faces the street. Um, But it's definitely not sort of the, uh, you know, back to where we were and everything's good now. It's still an incredibly challenging time. As you mentioned, uh, it will be a long time before we do get back to normal. Uh, therefore, a rule of thumb, if you don't have an online presence, good luck. I mean, this is really the survival for these retailers, is it not? It really is. It's a great point. And I mean, Canada has always been behind the U.S. and the U.K. with online shopping. The good news for Canadian retailers is most, if not all of them, sort of jumped on the e-commerce wagon, call it a year or two ago. Any of the laggards jumped on. So thank God they have it, because that's the only thing that was generating any cash if you're a non-essential business. Yeah, the food stores are doing great. Drug stores and things are doing okay. But if you're an apparel retailer, a footwear retailer, a non-essential product retailer, or a restaurant, this was your only way to generate any income whatsoever. All right, Reitman's uh, the latest to hear about uh, going into creditor protection. What can you tell us about their story? Yeah, I feel bad for them. I mean, they, they've been around since, you know, call it 1926, I think it is, a uh, Montreal-based company, Canadian icon. But, you know, sadly, I think the writing was on the wall for them and a number of other retailers. I mean, what you've noticed over the last five years in Canada is a lot of sort of those middle retail, the middle fashion brands, maybe Canadian-only fashion brands, the mall fashion brands, most of them have started to fall by the wayside now. And it finally got to Reitman's, right? I mean, you know, if you look at last year before the pandemic, they had a pretty tough year. They were down about 6% in sales, and they lost about, uh, they lost, I think it was $80 million, right? So, I mean, they, they had some serious work to do. Now, they had a transition plan, so the management team was trying to turn things around before this. I know that they've accelerated that. You know, they're trying to do it quicker. But it's just sadly one of those situations where if you don't have, have cash coming in, You can't pay your bills. You can't pay your creditors. You can't pay rent. You can't pay employees. You can't pay suppliers. 
And if you were limping a little bit before this, sadly, um, this crisis has put you over the top. Bruce, we've certainly seen how uh, we have uh, become dependent on other countries, specifically China. Uh, Many have called uh, that country the world's workshop now. Will Will this create a shop Canadian movement? I mean, we know, it's funny, you talk to people in the United States, they're... They're, they're, they always shop American or try to, uh, most will say, but that doesn't seem to be that uh, that sort of patriotism up here. Will this whole COVID-19 make us, we've seen this with smaller retailers, will this be make people more aware of shopping Canadian? Yeah, for example, a Reitman's? And I mean, if I had to take a stab at the situation, I would say that for a little while, you'll have a bit of a halo effect of folks trying to shop Canadian to keep their local restaurants and keep their local retailers alive. But let's face it, push comes to shove. Um, consumers will follow their pocketbook because they have to. They're under, they're under scrutiny too, right? There's a lot of folks who are losing their jobs, unemployment at, uh, you know, 13, 14%. A lot of people losing their jobs or reducing their hours. They're going to have to shop with their wallet first and their heart second, unfortunately. You're going to see some product that will kind of move back to Canada. You're going to see some uh, PPE products, some essential product, maybe some healthcare product, but Push comes to shove after the halo of this is over. People are going to shop with their pocketbook, and, and it's pretty much going to be China because um, China basically makes products cheaper than everyone else. Where does this leave the big malls, Bruce? I mean, my goodness, how are they, how are they getting through this? Yeah, they're not. Uh, the big malls are suffering. The small malls are suffering. Everyone's suffering. Um, even the, probably the tier two and three, three malls are suffering a little more, but I've been looking at a lot of the numbers and even some of the most prestigious malls have only got a fraction of their rent paid by their tenants for March and April, um, and May. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see them suffer. The big malls will survive this because they have good tenants. They have the A-list tenants, the big brands, the B and C malls are going to close down eventually and repurpose and become, you know, housing, dentist office, fitness places, pickup centers for online shopping. Uh, mm. They're just not going to make it. So tier three, tier two malls are probably going to go the way of the dinosaur, sadly, in the next uh, year or two. Where does that leave the larger ones? How long can they sustain this without opening? Uh, not too much longer, to be honest. Uh, even though they're big and they have deep pockets and they have good investors, eventually they have to pay the bills, too. Uh, they all probably have mortgages. And although there's some compensation and loans from the government, um, eventually, if this thing doesn't start kicking in in the next few weeks or months, uh, they're going to be distressed too. Now, just because you're distressed and you go into CCAA, which is creditor protection, doesn't mean it's lights out. What it means is you might negotiate with your creditors and say, hey, you know what? I owe you a million dollars. I can't pay you a million, but would you accept 700000 if I pay you in a year from now? And really, that's what uh, CCAA does, is it gives companies an ability to negotiate with their creditors without being harmed from the creditors in terms of them taking their assets away. So So where do you think companies will? Sorry, some of these companies will come out of this, but I would suggest many won't. Where do you think that leaves Reitman's? I think it leaves Reitman's, sadly, in the liquidation field. I don't think they're going to come out of this. They might come out of this for a little while after. But honestly, I don't see their brands being a going concern in the next three to five years. I know it's hard to take and hard to say, but I think retail has just passed them by, sadly. And I think their business model is out of date. Retail expert Bruce Winder has been with us talking about Reitman's, the latest business to go into creditor protection at this time. Bruce, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
Yeah, you too, Scott. Thanks very much. Uh, all right. Uh, talking about COVID-19, now it's uh, a lot of the discussion is coming out of this and uh, how do we prepare for what is uh, certainly the new normal in all of this as uh, it will probably be until we get a vaccine that life really does get back to normal. But then usually in a crisis, things progress. So will it ever be the same? Uh, some good questions to ask. Some experts are saying that the pandemic has revealed vulnerabilities in Canada's economy. I think a lot of experts are saying that, including our dependency on China. To talk more about all of this, Michael Veal is with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Are you? Just fine. Thank you. So COVID-19 has uh, exposed some vulnerabilities in Canada's uh, economy. Did we not see this? Could we not see this? I mean, I'm, obviously, we could not predict COVID-19 and, and what has happened, although I guess perhaps some did. But were we aware that we were this vulnerable before COVID-19? No, I don't think we were. On the other hand, you should remember that both the federal government and the provincial government of Ontario had, for example, face masks uh, stockpiled and they just let those uh, masks expire. Uh, that wasn't to do with dealing with China. That was something that we could have controlled here in Canada. So how has this exposed Canada's vulnerabilities? Well, I think the case for uh, having a certain amount of domestic production to be able to meet emergencies is, is strong. I do think that you can go overboard and that you can think about, well, that means we need to be protected in every way and have a domestic industry in, in every area. I think for, for certain sorts of medical equipment, that makes sense. Uh, I don't think it necessarily makes sense for everything. Uh, obviously, uh, well, I won't say obviously, but I'm, I'm guessing the reason we are where we are is because it's just cheaper to operate this way. It's cheaper, us, uh, cheaper for us to buy things from other places of the world where it's a lot cheaper to uh, produce than it is to produce it here. Is it expense that got us here? Sure, and, and it does make sense. Uh, uh, Adam Smith, the, the famous economist from long ago, his basic principle is uh, never uh, make at home something that you can buy more cheaply somewhere else. And I think for most things, that's the rule we should follow. But it is true in the case of certain sorts of strategic items, uh, it does make sense to have either a domestic stockpile, that's perhaps the best case, or if not, a domestic manufacturing capacity. So how do we take that philosophy that you, that you spoke of uh, and, and still balance all of this? And again, I mean, people could have never predicted uh, that it would be COVID-19 that would bring the world to a standstill uh, the way that it has. So, so how, how do you take that philosophy and, and, and buy products from other people that can do it cheaper than you, but still maintain uh, your independence? It, it's, it's hard, but as again, as I say, we do have the tool of the stockpile for emergency sorts of uh, elements. For other sorts of goods, you have to think about whether it's worthwhile sustaining a domestic operation for certain very important items. But again, I think you can go too far because in the end, we have made great strides as a Canadian economy, as a world economy, advancing our standard of living many fold, largely because each country, each individual within each country concentrated on what they do best mm -hmm. and then purchased items from other places where they can do those best. So that being said, how important is it for us to diversify where we get this stuff from? I mean, it seems that, that a lot of it was coming from China. Now many are speaking about 
looking for other options within the, the supply chain that necessarily don't include or would, would add to the supply chain in case China does go down? Yeah, so the China question does keep coming up. It's, it's difficult to deal with because, of course, uh, China is not a democracy. It's not a country that we can deal with in the same sense we can deal with other democracies. And, of course, it's very large and it has great strategic importance. So all these issues do get, get rolled into that, and I agree that we do have to be uh, somewhat careful about our interactions with China. On the other hand, I do think uh, that we have to recognize that China is a major part of the world. It does some things that we don't like at all. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we have to live with them. And they are a customer for our products, and we have to think about the ways in which we're going to be customers for their products. Have we become too dependent on China? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, I think that in the foreign policy area, we have had some difficulties with China that um, are regrettable, and it does show the difficulty of being a small country in a world with big powers that sometimes throw their weight around. Uh, I think that that leads me to think that we've become somewhat too dependent on China. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we all uh, purchase many goods from China, and we have for many years, and use those goods to our benefit. And I think it would be going too far to say that we should be thinking about something like cutting off ties. We have to find the middle ground. It's always difficult to be a country like Canada in the world because we're not powerful enough to get our own way. Uh, we have to be nimble, and we have to choose our allies, and we have to choose our battles. Uh, how do you think Canadians are going to react to this? I mean, obviously, the, the short-term solution is, well, we should just be buying Canadian uh, with people not understanding what you're explaining and, and your theories behind it. But what about the, the Walmart factor and such? And in the end, will we care about buying Canadian or where our supplies come from as long as they're cheaper? Well, or does this I, change things think... post-COVID-19? Sure, I, I understand. I, I think that in the case of a small number of strategic goods, it does make sense to concentrate on Canada, on Canadian production. But in the case of most goods, I do think that individuals should be prepared to buy the goods that they want. And so, for example, we like many goods that are made in China. Uh, Canada has not been very good at making phones, uh, cell phones. So should we switch into the business of making cell phones, even though other countries have demonstrated that they're, they can do it at a far cheaper rate than at least we so far have been able to do? I would say probably not. We probably shouldn't try to, to look for things that we're not good at. We should concentrate at the things that we are good at. Uh, that being said, uh, cell phones, I mean, you, you certainly can't put them in the Walmart category. It's not like a, a pair of Crocs or a fidget spinner or such. Uh, that's putting a lot of technology in the control of a communist country. Where does that leave things like 5G? Um, yes, uh, and, of course, how we do with why. Uh, the difficulty here is, of course, that there's a huge strategic element there. Uh, Britain, as you know, um, decided to go with the Chinese supplier, uh, received a lot of flack from the United States. Uh, we are closer to the United States in lots of dimensions. Uh, would it be strategic for us to make that choice? I think we're going to find out. It's, it's a very difficult choice for us to make. But I think you make a, a good point more broadly. Uh, there are goods that are Walmart goods. Uh, those ones, I think it's just fair to say that Canada can't be competitive at yeah. the kind of wages we want to have in Canada. So it makes sense for us to purchase those goods from elsewhere, and they're not typically strategic. Uh, when I switch to phones, it's a little more tricky, but I think the way for us to be in the phone business is not so much in terms of phone manufacture, but to make sure that we continue to be 
one of the leaders in things like phone software and phone design. So you were talking about uh, essential products we should produce. Uh, What sort of products, what categories would that be? What should we be producing here or certainly have more control over? Well, I think the the key one that's been exposed has been uh, medical goods. Uh, We have not been a great manufacturer of medical goods. I I think that we're we're finding that uh, sometimes during emergencies, uh, countries that we thought were our friends uh, were, were maybe not quite as friendly to us. And then we were unable to get goods that we needed. And that, in some sense, I don't think it turned out to be nearly as much a problem uh, in the event as it was one that uh, promoted a sense of, I would say, panic. Uh, You know, people were really worried about it, and it caused unnecessary fear. Um, Outside the medical uh, sphere, I wouldn't say there was very much myself, but I think we could think about other things. Of course, we do have a certain amount of refining capacity, so in emergencies we would have enough uh, fuel and things like that. Uh, we do produce uh, uh, electricity, which is an important uh, item for us. Uh, f- food items, of course, we can't produce the whole spectrum of food. Our, our climate is not suited to that. But I don't think there's any fear of us in, in an emergency not having enough food for people to eat. So there would be relatively few others that I would put in that category. What will it take for China to regain the trust of the world? Well, I don't know. I I. I kind of think the pendulum has swung to us from being uh, perhaps a little bit naive with China to perhaps being a little bit more worried about them than than we need to be. It is true that China delayed the announcement, but it's also true that China revealed the the gene map that was the key to testing at a very early stage. Uh, They have, I think, tried to perform um, more collegially. Uh, since, and I have to, you have to remember. I mean, it's a country of a billion people, and there's there's a whole mix of spectrum of beliefs and ideas amongst them. China is sorting out where it's going to be in the world itself at this point, and I don't think that we should necessarily assume the worst. Michael Veal has been with us, professor with the Depo- uh, Department of Economics, McMaster University. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Along with the announcement yesterday that the uh, schools would be closed for the rest of the year, also overnight camps not taking place. Day camps will uh, if they can figure it out between now and July and and obviously incorporate self-distancing and such. Uh, How is this going to impact parents and such through the summer months? Let's bring in Ann Douglas, parenting expert and author of the Mother of All Baby Books series. She is with us now. And thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, great to talk to you, Scott. So obviously, uh, this is a very fine line to walk here, uh, trying to get the province back to normal or some semblance of that, and obviously keep everybody uh, safe. What are your thoughts on how we're doing with all of this? Well, I think it's really challenging, and I think um, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that is going into each of these decisions. I mean, I would not want to be a politician for any amount of money right now, likewise a public health official, because they're having to make impossible choices and knowing that no matter what they decide, it's going to make life harder for some people. But hopefully the bigger picture is it keeps more people safe. Uh, Your thoughts on the schools remaining closed for uh, the rest of the school year? I think it was a really necessary decision. I think that, uh, yes, It makes things very challenging for families who felt like they were sinking a few weeks ago and are trying to tread water even now. But um, 
personally, I kept thinking like, you know, we're going to go through all the upheaval for what? A couple of weeks? Uh, that A isn't going to be easy for the kids because you're basically going to be saying start a school year, end a school year. So that's really hard and challenging for them. And then add to that the fact that we still don't know everything we need to know about this, this virus. So why would we, for minimal benefit, sort of, you know, throw that out there as a wild card? Uh, your thoughts now on uh, also part of this announcement, overnight camps not taking place. Lots of kids certainly look forward to that every year, uh, but they're they're going to try to squeeze in at least the day camps of some sort. Right. I think, again, this was a really necessary but also really hard choice for a lot of people because you're right. A lot of kids look forward all year to that, and parents rely on summer camp as often essential child care. Like, yes, most people, if they're lucky, can afford a week or two of camp. It is not inexpensive. But, you know, that becomes part of the patchwork quilt of child care arrangements for the summer, maybe supplemented with some family vacation or whatever. Uh, so the kids are disappointed. The parents are stressed. And there's that ongoing cloud of uncertainty where we just don't know how are we supposed to make things work when, you know, the economy is starting to slowly inch back into gear. Well, what about all the people who rely on childcare or summer camp in order to make that happen? There's still so many unknowns. And I think once we have a bit more clarity about that, it won't feel quite so crushing and overwhelming to parents because... People are struggling like I have never seen. I mean, I've been writing about parenting for three decades. I've been living life as a parent for over three decades, and I've never encountered a moment like this. It really is massive and overwhelming. Uh, what about the kids? Uh, we always say kids are resilient and all this sort of stuff, but uh, you can start to see the novelty of all of this wear off. They've had it. Yeah. Yeah, and they've been faced with a lot of disappointments, and it's like one disappointment on top of another. Some of them are sort of, you know, garden variety things where, you know, for a while you couldn't ride your bike with your friends, and, you know, that's probably the reality for the foreseeable future. But other things are sort of like once-in-a-lifetime milestone moments. I mean, one of my nieces was supposed to be getting an award at her graduation. And so, yes, she'll still get the award in the mail or it'll be delivered to the porch, but it's not the same as, you know, being celebrated by your teachers and your classmates for all that hard work. So really difficult time to be a kid. And I think that parents have to remember that what might not feel like the end of the world to you could, in fact, feel like the end of the world to a younger kid, like all those kids who've had to sacrifice their birthday parties. That's a huge deal when you're six. We, we we talk uh, a lot on the show about how this will affect life moving forward uh, and mostly adult things. How do you think this is going to change kids' perceptions moving forward? I think it's going to be a whole new reality. I mean, they're going to have to make sense of whole new different ways of being in the world and what strange messages they're getting about what it means to be human, eh? Because up until now, we've been talking about, you know, human connection is everything, relationships are everything, and they still are. But now, what if some kids come out of this wondering and worrying about, you know, what, what does it mean to have to sort of like cross the street when another family is walking by on the sidewalk? Like just so many strange things. So I think we're going to have to talk through a lot of these issues with our kids and help them make sense of that and to separate the two pieces that we still want to be emotionally and socially connected to others. But maybe because of the virus, it won't be in quite such a physical way right now. All right. Any advice, Anne, as we move forward with this for parents and the kids? I think 
just know that you are not the only person who's having a really hard time. Reach out for support to other people. And yes, they'll provide support in different ways. But a lot of people are cheering for you, parents, and a lot of people see your struggle. And every single day, my heart breaks a little bit for you. And I just I'm waiting for things to get better. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. Ann Douglas has been with us, parenting expert and author of the Mother of All Baby Book series. And thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, Let's bring in John Spatazzo, Catholic Youth Organization. uh, And, of course, let's talk about Camp Marydale. John, how are you? Thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. So where does this leave Camp Marydale? Well, I'm uh, I'm currently at Camp Marydale here, and as uh, as you noted about looking out our window, I'm looking out the window, and this place is absolutely beautiful. I however, can imagine. However, it's empty, <laughs> which um, unfortunately it's uh, it's a very unfortunate situation all across the board, and we recognize that. But the 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 one beautiful thing about this facility is it completely comes to life when there's uh, there's children on property, and uh, and full of people to uh, to play and recreate. And it's one thing that we've missed since um, March 13th was uh, the, the last day that we shut our programs down. And, and here we are thinking that um, we'll be okay for the summer. And uh, it's, a, it's a different story right now, as, uh, as we're all very aware, aware of. So what does that mean? What will it look like? Will it lo- what will we see? Will well, we see anything? We, we have a, you know, I, I'd like to say we have a couple, but I think we're more like we have about 15 different models on how we're going to roll this out. And the problem is that we just there's so much out there from um, from the government that we we're not aware of as of yet, and and we're hoping they will let us know. And everything, you know, I'm not sure what when phase two will happen and what the numbers are going to look like because right now they're suggesting that we cannot have more than five people at any given time in in any close proximity. Now, as we know, camp in order to 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 recreate and have fun in camp, you know. We're very close quarters, and we're very active, and we're doing activities from hiking to games to, to pond mm-hmm. study to play-in. And until we know what the numbers are and what the ratios are going to be and, of course, the protocols, we don't know what model that we're going to roll out. We're, um, we're prepared, and we're getting prepared. We, unfortunately, are very limited in staff as a result of, um, of layoffs and as a result of the... Uh, suspension of all, all programs and services. So we're, we're at a point now that it's, I don't want to say we're holding our breath, but we're just waiting. We're waiting for the announcement to say, okay, you're good to go as far as day camping. And we operate a residential uh, or an overnight camp, Camp Rebuff in Rockwood. Yep, yep. And it was devastating news to our staff. It was devastating news that we um, that we're not able to do what we do best and what we enjoy doing. Now, with that said, we do have a, a day program at Camp Rebuff, so we will be serving much the same as what we'll serve here at uh, CYO Camp Marydale, um, based on the um, the outlines that will be uh, that we rolled out hopefully in the coming weeks from our um, our um, provincial government. Uh, obviously, uh, everyone's waiting on modeling and and, uh, and and advice from health officials as they slowly reopen this. Uh, how long would it take once you get the word to get it up and running? How long? How much time do you need to to turn it around? Well, as far as time, I don't think I could put a marker on the exact amount of time, other than the fact that we are we're still we're we're lingering out of our winter season and. 
there's a, a, a great deal we of the staff that were were hired prior to um, this pandemic uh, going full blown. We've suspended all of those contract summer staff, so we're going to have to bring them back. We have to get our facilities up and running. You know, you can just imagine as as we are in our backyards, everyone was spending time over the last several uh, weeks, mm-hmm. months to get it together. We've done the same. Facility-wise, we're close. Operationally-wise, again, it's going to come down to to the levels of announcement. We should be able to pull things together inside a, a four-week uh, to six-week period to be prepared and ready to go um, for uh, late to late July, early August. And what advice do you have for parents who are, I guess, the same same predicament you are, just sort of standing by and, and waiting yeah. to see how this all rolls out and, and how it happens or if there'll even be space for them? What advice do you have for the parents at this point? Yeah, you know, and you hear quite a bit, and it's uh, um, not a cliche, but the, the, the piece of patience is, is critically important. And, and I get it, you know. I, I, I can't imagine um, having a, a household of young children uh, who are who are happy and anxious to to, to to breach into the March break and only to find out they get an extra two weeks and then all yeah. of a sudden two weeks has turned out to two months and then the school year's ended. The frustrations for the parents must be overwhelming. We understand that and we've heard the frustrations. We get the phone calls and we get the upset parents and the be them reasonable and some unreasonable, but. We, we know that the, the frustration in their voices is coming strictly from um, the anxiety yeah. and concern about the well-being of their children and getting them to recreate, getting them outside and interacting with other youth. So uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left here, uh, John. So is there a waiting list? Can parents be on that? And then when things open up, you let them know? Or is it just everything's on standby yeah, until we, you get the word? We do have an active waiting list. Um, and uh, for those parents that do want to register, they can certainly continue to register for the um, uh, the summer programs at Camp right. Bay and Camp Mary, the day programs. And um, we will we'll go through the uh, the wait list and register the uh, the yeah. families as quick as possible. Again, all the demarcations are going to be based on the numbers that are handed down by right. the, uh, the provincial governments and our public health sector. Got to cut it off there, John. John Spitazzo has been with us, Catholic Youth Organization, talking about the impact on Camp Marydale, Brabuff, and such, and we have to stay tuned. John, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all of this. Will do. Thank you, Scott. All right, a uh, a new uh, report out saying that, uh, and I guess this is no surprise, really, that uh, we have seen a spike in depression and anxiety since the pandemic begun, uh, especially in Ontario and Atlantic Canada. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Caddy Kamkar is with us, clin- uh, clinical psychologist, and is with us now. Caddy, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, as always, for having me. I guess we can't be surprised to see an increase in depression and anxiety during this pandemic. Yeah, you, you know, as, as you said it very well, it's, it's not surprising. I think that here, um, when the pandemic did onset, there was, of course, a range of emotions um, from feeling sad, uh, feelings of anger, anxiety, of course, and also to 
uh, range of thoughts, a lot of worries. Um, it's it very understandable in terms of, you know, the fear of infection to self or others, all the changes, drastic changes, sudden changes to our everyday life and structure and routine. And of course, the worries about employment and finances and the future. And also realizing even more so now that, okay, it is a new normal. It was a new normal with the pandemic, but right now with starting to uh, more businesses opening, it's another new normal. When you have more businesses even opening, that's going to be another new normal. What's going to be the new normal next year? What is going to be the new normal after vaccination? So those are also driving a lot of anxieties here right now as well. Uh, why is, uh, such an increase in Ontario and Atlantic Canada, do you think? And it, it appears people seem to be less affected in it, uh, by it in Quebec, which, oddly enough, has the highest uh, case average. You know, we always need to engage in more studies and research to really have, um, b- you know, better and more legitimate, you know, responses to really have a better understanding in terms of that. So really more data ongoing data and more research for that. Um, but, you know, sometimes it can also be depending on the specific type of worries, um, to what extent employment or finances might have been affected, um, to what extent, let's say, with any opening of the businesses, again, to what extent the uh, businesses and the finances will be affected, and then also ensuring that, you know, our mental health is very important. Health is health, whether it's mental health and physical health. So it's really around ensuring access to care and resources. And we do know um, that there's effective treatment available and it's virtual therapy, whether it's telemedicine or, or any kind of virtual therapy platform, it's effective and um it's always a good thing to also talk about it with a mental health uh, professional whenever is needed and indicated. You talked about the new normal, doctor. Um, can that be as depressing as getting into this? I mean, for example, uh, we're into like, what, week 10 of this now, and we're starting to see the light. As you mentioned, things are starting to open up, but then people are realizing it's going to open up very slowly. It is a new normal. Can that only add to this, thinking, you know, I thought it was going to be better, and now I've got to do this, but there's this, you know, this all this other protocol that comes with it. I know, and you're right about that, right? So, it, absolutely. First of all, with the new normal, that also means new routine, new structure, and also for us to adjust again. But it also means that it always creates more anxiety, because as human beings, we don't always like change either. But especially right now, there's so much uncertainty. So what would the new normal be? How am I going to do my work? Will my work be affected? Will I have childcare? Do I have elder care? How is going to be the commute? And the fear of, again, contamination of self and others. The other thing is that right now, again, we're continuing, despite the new normal, our flight and fight response, more so than uh, before, is always activated, right? So when the brain sees a threat, um, it, 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 the, the flight and fight response is inbuilt alarm system is always activated. And here, of course, going out with a mask and then the gloves, it could be, you know, washing hands, we cannot touch this. And then the commute, you know, all of those worries that, you know, you do groceries, you bring it home, you have to clean it, right? So the brain is constantly thinking about those very same things that before we would not think about before. The other thing is that it's a grief as well, right? So, 
I mean, of course, COVID has been a grief and grief is on a continuum from, you know, people would say, I miss going out with, you know, grabbing my coffee and my mm-hmm. newspaper and then going to my, you know, taking TTC and going to public transit, going to my office to I miss my social gatherings and the birthdays and then, you know, the going to dining outside to, of course, the other extreme, which is, you know, the sadness and the tragedies and the illness and the death. So when we talk about new normal, it's also a form of grief as well, especially if people enjoyed their new normal before. And now they they don't want to abandon some of the things that the very things that they enjoyed before. But here it's also around how can we use it proactively? I think this is where we like we need to use our psychological flexibility in terms of we need to revise our expectations. We need to change our goals and expectations and also focusing on what we have control over and the current worries and leave the potential for worries at a later time of focusing on what we have control over and definitely practicing self-compassion. So balancing any negative thoughts and, and their emotions, reframing the thoughts. Uh, self-kindness so that we do not judge ourselves and also knowing that we all human beings there's always imperfections and so on so ultimately when we're able to boost our resilience and the psychological personal growth and flexibility and self-compassion we will tremendously gain from that experience and we will feel more resilient we will feel stronger and better so yes it is going to be a new normal but it's also realizing we're not alone we do need to seek support we will make it through and we will feel stronger dr caddy kamkar has been with us clinical psychologist doctor as always thank you so much for the time much appreciated be well thank you so much be well and be safe you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday they had announced, or I guess a, a few days ago, announced that uh, that the Ontario government will be holding a commission starting in September on the long-term care system and how we got to where we are. Uh, obviously, this is a problem that's been going on for years and through several political parties and such. Uh, and many are calling for an inquiry. Uh, inquiry versus commission. Uh, what is the difference? Let's bring in Jane Medes, barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly, and is with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me. So your thoughts on uh, the province announcing a commission, and as, as my follow-up to that, is what is the difference between an inquiry and a commission? Well, in, in my my understanding of the law and from what I've been gathering, I think that this, you know, issue around what we're calling it and the nomenclature is a bit of a red herring. Um, under the Public Inquiries Act, a um, government appoints a commissioner. Uh, the commission are the people who look into the, to the issue. It's the people that are hired. Um, and the, uh, the actual public inquiry itself is the um, investigation. So this is actually going to be a public inquiry. So uh, is this politics here now? At the end of the day, are, are, do, you, do you have the sort of investigation that you're hoping for? Well, again, again we don't know. So um, the authority of for a public inquiry comes, or for the commission, comes from the uh, government, uh, from cabinet, uh, through an order. And so the parameters of what the uh, commission and the inquiry can do will come through that. So it could include, for example, having public hearings like we saw at the Wettlaufer um, issue uh, inquiry. Uh, it could include uh, research. 
Um, again, it could include funding for different parties to be able to attend at an inquiry, like happened at, at the Galice inquiry into the wet lawfer. It depends on what the government sets out. So they appoint a commissioner, they set the parameters, and then the commission goes ahead. So uh, we, we've heard, and again, this is perhaps the politics of all of it, that, that, that an inquiry takes a longer uh, period of time. It's, it's a lot more in, de- in depth. It goes more into the history of all of this. For the wet lawfer case, for example, how did this happen? How did we get here? Uh, uh, what procedures were or were not in place to allow this sort of thing to happen? Whereas in this situation, don't we sort of know what the issue is in the sense that from as far as I've been following this, is that number one, uh, there's not enough personal health care workers or health care workers to, uh, to, to be in these sites. And then also, there's no real set uh, regulations on how they're supposed to run. There's, there's guidelines, there's suggestions, but there's no real, even though these are all, uh, I guess, supervised through uh, government or police, there is no set guidelines. Uh, do we need to go into long, drawn-out, political, expensive things for a big report that gets stuck on a shelf? I mean, we've all heard inquiries up our yin-yang here. Uh, do we not know what the problem is here? I think we know some of the problems, and I don't think we know all of the problems. And unfortunately, if we don't have those sort of public inquiry where you have hearings, um, the voice of the residents, the voice of the families will get lost. Um, the good thing about public inquiries is that they get their public, their, you know, public hearings at a public inquiry is that they uh, will be uh, seen by the public. Different parties get to have a voice. Um, and we can hear from, you know, different groups to say what went wrong, what went well. Um, without that, I can tell you that it will not be a fulsome um, report. Any commission comes out with a report. It doesn't matter whether they have public hearings or not. Um, you know, and they can all sit on shelves because all commissions or public inquiries are just recommendations to the government. So what we really need is the government and the other political parties, because, you know, some of these things could happen uh, by the time you get there. It could be another election. We could have a different party. Who knows? Um, They all have to say that they are going to, um, you know, implement these recommendations. Um, That's always the problem with any kind of these commissions or inquiries. They are always recommendations. And and I think that's the lot. I think that's a lot of the red flag that's going up here when people call uh, inquiry or commission is that you know again it's going to make the politicians feel good and they'll get up to stand up and say here's what we should be doing but nothing ever gets done. Um, everybody wants to know what's happened. Everybody wants this fixed. Why are we having this discussion about? what it's going to look like. I mean, isn't this all obvious to everybody what needs to be done? It appears uh, the government is falling short of the word inquiry. That's why I asked you the difference between inquiry and commission. So w- what's to be gained here by doing this? Well, what we need to do is I think that the thing is that the commission um, and the public inquiry, um, you know, can um, have different parts. So, for example, I think that it's pretty clear and everyone knows that um, the older homes with the four bedrooms are are a terrible idea. They've been trying to redevelop them since 2009. That does not need to be the subject, for example, necessarily of hearings, right? Um, The inquiry could be tasked, that could be like a part one of the inquiry or something where they could, you know, look into that, look at the research. But other things around what is happening in those homes that we will not hear unless we have hearings. 
um, because we hear a lot about what should be happening. We hear the government saying, you know, the you know, PPEs are available. You know, you, all you have to do is ask. And yet when you talk to people who live or work in long-term care homes, that is not the case. And we need to hear those voices. And those will only come out if they have, um, you know, uh, public hearings, uh, you know, uh, like we did in the uh, Galice inquiry. So where are we now with this? What's happening we, right now? Where we are right now is we're hearing a lot of discussion about whether this is an inquiry or commission. And I say that's a red herring because, you know, frankly, it's, it is a commission that runs an inquiry. Um, it's the parameters that we need to hear about. So it's the gov- what really the next step is for the government um, to put out its order in council with the terms of reference. Um, and, you know, it has to be broad enough that we're looking at everything. It has to be broad enough that we will have some kind of public hearing um, so that the different voices will all be heard and this will all be done above board. Um, but we're waiting for the government to see, you know, exactly what it is that they're recommend that they're going to what the terms of reference are so we'll know what they're suggesting they're saying that is going to be done uh what do you think an inquiry or commission will end up revealing well i think that it will end up revealing a number of things i think it will end up revealing um uh you know as you pointed out there's you know certain things like uh guidelines are around um infection control. So every home has to have an infection control protocol, but it's up to the home to set those protocols. Clearly those protocols uh, were not sufficient. So I think we need, that would be one of the things we would be looking at is what would be appropriate. How, how did homes that did well, um, you know, avoid um, having huge outbreaks um, and how, what happened in homes where there were um, very poor outcomes? So what was the difference? Is it the protocol? Was it the implementation? You know, exactly what happened. And those are the things that we really need to delve into very deeply. Uh, also, lots of chatter in regard to public homes versus private homes. W- where do you think the answer lies there? Uh, many are saying they should all be uh, made public. There shouldn't be private uh uh, involvement here at all, but is it possible to do that as long as we do have these regulations in place? So, I mean, the government could always change and, and decide to uh, uh, make all the long-term care homes public. I, I doubt that that will happen, but I do think that there are issues around the um, uh, what kind of um, home, you know, what kind of uh, for-profit facilities that we're having. Um, you know, there is a real question as to whether or not homes should be making millions of dollars off the backs of seniors through the public dollars. I think that's a really big question. Um, but I think that there are multiple levels of how the for-profit sector works. And I think that's something that we're really going to have to look at. Considering where our healthcare system is now, can we afford to take this over? Is that even an option? Well, of course, that's another question, but we're already paying for it. Yeah. Uh, in the form of a pandemic? Well, we're already paying. I mean, I mean, the money for long-term care comes from the, the government of Ontario and, and from the residents. That's where the money is coming from. So they're already paying for it. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and out of that is coming the profits that the long-term care homes are making. So uh, obviously, uh, I think many have pointed out that this is not a new problem. This has been a problem that's been around for... 
uh, decades. Why do you think that this has not been addressed? Uh, and I, th- I believe we've talked earlier about this is not one of the more fashionable issues uh, that politicians uh, used to, to grab young votes with. Um, but when it comes to health care and senior care, this isn't necessarily one of those fashionable election issues. Uh, are, are you concerned that once this is over, that this will go back to the back burner and, and won't be a top of mind issue? Well, I'm hoping not. I think that, you know, it's, it's um, the chance here uh, to rectify what has really been um, an, a very ageist view to how, um, you know, we pr- provide care to, to seniors, to people in long-term care homes. I think we've seen that through the pandemic. We've seen in cases where people are being told that they can't go to hospital, you know, they're old, they're going to die anyway kind of thing. Um, and I think that's part of what I'm hoping will come through some sort of public inquiry will be a change in those attitudes, but we have to have the government buy into it. Will we see uh, th- this uh, Ford government call a inquiry to this? Um, because again, they seem hesitant. What is your thoughts? Why the hesitancy? Because again, if this is an issue that's been around for decades, they haven't been in power that long. If anything, this is going to make the liberals look bad. Um, which is, I, I think, one of the reasons the NDP is really calling for one because they're they're the only ones with something to gain out of this. Where, wh- why do you think the the premier isn't calling for just yeah, we're going to have an inquiry? Yeah, well, you know, whatever whatever we need to fix this, we're going to do it. Well, I actually think they have called for an inquiry. I think yeah. that that that's actually what they have done. It's what the parameters are of that inquiry. And we don't know, I don't know what is in his mind. So I can't speak to that. Right. But is there any, and as I mentioned earlier, there just seems to be this, well, they should be calling an inquiry. Well, we're having a commission. So again, the, the, for, for those listening, for those lay people that are listening right now, it, the, the difference between a commission and an inquiry is just the parameter is just the, well, the scope in which they have to, to investigate. Well, the commission is the group that's doing the investigation and the inquiry is the investigation itself, but it's always set by the government. So the parameters for the commission is set by the government. So we just have to wait and see what the government is going to put in that terms of reference. Right. So this has been scheduled to start in September. Any thoughts on that? Is Should it be started sooner? Should it be started later? Is, that, is, is the timeline uh, effective for you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the sooner the better. Um, I'm not sure whether they're, I'm assuming that what they're going to be doing is going to be appointing a commissioner pretty soon and putting in the terms of reference. Um, And it will take the commissioner some time to put together a team, um, because it's not one person on their own to put together a team. Um, You know, they have to do things like figure out, you know, this is sort of the nuts and bolts of how to do that. You know, you're starting from scratch. Um, I don't know whether they'll have offices, given uh, what we're doing right now, but, you know, certainly things like setting up offices, getting computers, getting all the people, and then they would be hopefully up and running um, to start the actual work in September. Uh, what is your feeling on this? Um, obviously, you've been an advocate, uh, uh, an advocate for this cause long before the pandemic. What are your thoughts on pre-pandemic and post-pandemic? Well, I think that the long-term care is going to work looking very differently post-pandemic uh, um, because, uh, you know, one of the things that we uh, know is that, you know, it's not going away. We may be flattening the curve. Uh, it may wax and wane over time. 
but things like visitors in long-term care, staffing, PPE, infection control are all going to be um, very different moving forward, even if we don't have uh, a huge outbreak at one time, because until we get a vaccine, it is always going to be there and a potential disaster waiting to happen if we don't properly care for the um, people living there. So I think we're going to see some a lot of changes in long-term care, even in the short term, and then perhaps in the longer term, some more major changes. Uh, Jane, just wanted to get your take on a situation here in Hamilton at the Roslyn where uh, patients were being transferred out uh, and, and, and one left behind. Here is a report from uh, CHML's Rick Zamprin. 52 residents from the Roslyn Retirement Residence were transferred to St. Joseph's Hospital and the Hamilton General Hospital between Friday afternoon and early Saturday morning. But the resident wasn't found in his room in the empty retirement home until Saturday evening after the man's family called St. Joe's. Officials at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton have apologized for the mistake, pointing to the lack of a master list of residents at the retirement home. At last check, he is in stable condition in the COVID-19 unit at St. Joe's. Rick Samprin, 900 CHML News. Jane, this is uh, the sort of story that I'm sure just makes people shake their head. And again, you don't want to you know, point fingers at this point. We are in the middle of a pandemic, and I know everyone is doing the best that they possibly can. But this does, again, point to a lack of a plan in some way. Right. So this is a retirement home, so it's a tenancy. It's under different legislation than our long-term care homes. Um, but it still has, um, under the Retirement Home Homes Act, has certain requirements. Um, but, you know, one of my under- one of the things that I understand was that it didn't like, for example, have a master list of residents. And, you know, you'd think that this would be something that would have been pretty simple to have. Yeah. Um, and there seems to have been a real lack of, of organization um, and not at all good planning uh, with this home. Um, and that's really scary because, you know, we do have a lot of vulnerable people living in the retirement home sector as well. Um, which isn't as heavily regulated. Um, and people are paying a lot of money to be in those places. Um, but, you know, if something like this obviously should never happen. Um, you know, it, it was clearly a very uh, complex um, move. Um, you know, when I heard uh, about it, that they had done this, uh, I was very surprised because it's something that's, you know, so unusual. Um, and so, you know, again, we have to look at that sector as well and see, you know, are we serving the people who are living um, in retirement homes as well, because they are becoming quasi-long-term care homes um, because we don't have enough beds. Um, and, you know, we're, we're downloading a lot of the cost onto seniors who are paying lots of money to live in them. Will a commission, will this commission cover all of this? I think we're just all assuming it will cover that all, all of this. Is, is this commission something separate from this scenario? And that's one of the questions that we have is whether or not when they're looking at, you know, they've talked very specifically about long-term care, um, but retirement homes, um, you know, are covered by some of the same directives and some of the same rules under the pandemic um, and, you know, are really looking at the same populations. And so there's a real question. Um, it would have to be in the terms of reference, and I don't think that the government has um, spoken of that at all. I did see some questions in the House this morning, um, but I, I don't know whether they uh, indicated whether or not they were going to be including that in in the um, terms of reference. 
But, and again, shouldn't there be some sort of mandatory guideline, you know, here are the standards, here's what you need to do for all of these institutions? I mean, again, it's it's everybody who's 75 plus. This would apply, no? Uh, there's different, you know, there are different rules and regulations. Um, yeah. Retirement homes are private sector. It's it's by contract. But even um, though they're private sector, should they not still have to, uh, you know, abide by government regulation? Absolutely. And there are government rules. They are governed. They're licensed. Um, they're inspected. Um, this home is under right now is under um, two orders, uh, a mandatory management order as well as a compliance order with respect to um, their infection control program, which clearly was inadequate. Um and, you know, unfortunately, those things are sort of happening after the fact, um, as often happens. Uh, and absolutely, we need to look to see whether or not that should be included in such a such a, a, a an inquiry. Jane Medes has been with us, barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly, Ontario, announcing they're hosting a commission in September on long-term care. Not sure at this point exactly what it is going to look like, but certainly uh, lots of attention needs to be paid to all of these different areas. Jane, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. And I just saw something that totally freaked me out. You know, I'm watching uh, TV and I'm nonstop news. That's what we do. And you know those little earbud things? We're watching all the people broadcast from home on TV too, right? And you know the little earbud things you put in your ears for your device? Well, they got rid of the cords, so now they just have those two little white things, the earbuds that go in. And you know how they kind of go in and then they hang down about an inch or two, right? This guy's got his turned up like horns. So when I'm looking at his face on the camera, I'm seeing the bottom of his earbuds. They're pointing at me. Instead of having his earbuds pointing down toward his shoulders, shoulders, he's got his earbuds pointing out towards his eyes. What the heck is that? It's freaking me out. You find this threatening, Scott? (laughs) It just looks weird. It's, all of a sudden, this man's got his apparatus on his face turned around, and I don't know what he's trying. It's some sort of statement. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a curse. Now you know what people are going to be doing. They're going to be getting extensions to put on their earbuds, and then they're going to put them up like uh, devil horns. Yes. Why don't you just point them straight up? Is it me? Am I snapping? <laughs> After 10 weeks, is I, have I finally hit my point? Maybe a little. What the heck is that? But that's just, uh, you know, news reporter is bored out of his tree as I am trying to figure out how to do something different. So why don't I put my headphones on sideways? Oh, by the way, I'm not wearing pants. Knew it. (laughs) All right, we'll leave it at that. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.